From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. What does the world look like through the eyes of our youngest adults? Gen Zers, born roughly between the 1990s and 2010, are facing the prospect of living on a hotter, drier, more storm-prone Earth. Greta Thunberg captured the world's attention when, as a teenager, she challenged world leaders to consider the environmental disasters they were leaving for her generation. Since Thunberg first spoke up, we've seen lawsuits about this. A group ranging in age from 5 to 22 accused Montana of violating their constitutional rights to health, safety, and equal protection under the law. They won their case. The state of Montana is appealing. We've seen the California state government file suit against oil companies, claiming they knowingly downplayed the dangerous effects of fossil fuels. Delaware has launched its own legal action against the oil giants. But according to Pew Research Center, only 46% of Americans believe climate change is caused by human activity. That study was conducted in 2023, the year now deemed hottest on record by climate scientists. In his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, nature writer and New York Times bestselling author David Gessner explores what the world might look like in 2063. Why that year? It's when his daughter, Hadley, will turn 60. They're both with us today. David Gessner, Hadley Gessner, welcome to Coastline. Thank Thank you. Thank you. It's good to have both of you with us today. Now, Hadley, your dad in in this book describes your generation and what you went through. And just taking a look at your high school years, can you describe that for us? It's pretty dismal. (laughs) Um, It's funny because when I was in it, it seemed so normal. But looking back at it, it's so abnormal and new and such an unexplored terrain. But... I had one year of high school in total, one semester of high school, that wasn't affected by either a hurricane or a pandemic. One semester, not even a year. One semester. So my first semester, there was a hurricane. Florence. Florence, Florence. (laughs) 2018. 2018. um, Second semester freshman year, that was the good one. Um, First semester sophomore year, there was Dorian, I believe. And then second semester, sophomore year was COVID. And then COVID all throughout my high school experience. I went into college wearing masks still. So, And how do you, it's hard sometimes when you're in it mm-hmm. to be able to describe how it affects you. But how do you think that abnormal high school experience affected your psyche and the way you see the world and the way you see the future? I'm scared. I think that that's kind of the overarching theme. And something that I've talked to my father about pretty frequently is how the fear has kind of dissipated and turned into anger. Um, And it's kind of manifested in this new kind of teen angst that I see a lot in kids my age that's more political and more centered at like, what have the previous generations done to us? Why are we in this position? So I think a lot of my rage towards the world um, revolves around these experiences that I had in high school where 
I was just trying to go about my day, live my life. Um, I was worried about things like getting an A on a paper, but I was also worried about things like where I would stay the next time the beach flooded. So that was a massive thing for me, especially when the pandemic hit. I mean, nobody knew it was going to happen. And I remember I was so worried about my grade in pre-calculus. And the next day we were all being sent home. So it really, it's kind of a shift between your own interpersonal worries and concerns to like the, the more worldly um, woes, I guess, that kind of throws you for a loop. And it really had me up and down. Yeah, of course. Usually teenagers aren't faced with that kind of blow after blow after blow externally. But David Gessner, this book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, the, the premise, as we've said, is what the world, what the earth will look like in 2063. We understand the premise. How did you come up with that? How did that emerge? Accidentally, really. Some books you plan out and you put maps on. By the way, I could just sit here and listen to Hadley talk for, <laughs> instead of going on. You, you know, I'm, I'm sick of hearing myself, so I could listen to her. But, you know, a lot of books, I have a little writing shack, which is actually affected by climate change. It's behind my house on Hewlett's Creek, and I've watched the water creep up over the years. But some I'll go down there and I'll put maps up on the walls, and I'm going west and I'm doing this. This was almost entirely accidental, also if, impacted by the pandemic. When I started traveling a year after, you know, we withdrew, um, my first trip was to D.C. It was for a business. I was interviewing, actually, Jamie Raskin, the congressman. And it was so strange there. Uh, it was the pandemic still, but also the, uh, the wire over the fences and people with machine guns. And, the, and it was just – it put me in kind of an apocalyptic state of mind. This was in response to January 6th. Yes. This was a couple months later. It was March. And then when I traveled again, I went to Boulder, Colorado, which had always been kind of – it's where my wife and I met, and we bring Hadley every summer, and it's kind of a refuge for us. And it always had been a safe place. I actually went there when I – I first moved there after recovering from cancer when I was 30, and I I associated it with health. And it was a sickly place when we got there that summer. The smoke was everywhere. Your eyes burned if you went outside. I headed west for a book tour to Moab and was visiting with someone. And all of a sudden, a flash flood came down (laughs) the valley. And I was just starting to think, hey, we're really – this isn't something off in the future. We're in it. And this is real. So, you know, I did what I always do. I took journal notes. And then suddenly it kicked in that this is really what I should be writing about, um, partly for Hadley, but partly for myself. And then I was close enough. I was already in Salt Lake City. I headed out to Paradise, California. And they were, you know, they two years earlier when we had Florence, they had, of course, the, you know, their fire. But now a new fire, the Dixie Fire, was coming. And I think it was one woman I interviewed who said, people don't understand that the climate crisis is a personal story, that it's each of our stories. And that, that's when it kind of, I said yes. And of course, um, Hadley had actually been more active. And I always say she has the activist gene that I lack. Um, she gave a talk right down the street at, at City Hall and um, formed the Sunrise Group in her high school. So I thought of her and I projected ahead. And that's kind of how the, the central conceit came about. I would start to ask scientists, ask everyone really, you know, to picture the world 
in 2063. And you got some uh, some brave souls, climate scientists, who were willing to speculate 40 years out. But why was why is that sort of a tough get from? Uh, partly because there's an arrogance to prediction. Um, one of my favorite quotes is A.R. Emmons, a North Carolina poet. Firm ground is not available ground. And I, I believe in uncertainty. And for all the modeling, they do too. There are great fluctuations. You know, you can talk to one scientist about sea level rise and they'll say by the time Hadley's 60, it's going to be four and a half feet. Another will say four and a half inches. So, you know, you have this fluctuation and I understand. And I was really encouraged by the first person who was Paul Weinberg, atmospheric chemist at Caltech who basically took it as a creative writing assignment. <laughs> and he, he wrote a whole little poetic thing about how the sunsets in 2063 would be like those after Mount Pinatubo in 1991. They'd be red and orange and the sun wouldn't, you know, you'd still see the sun hours afterward. And then he put a kind of optimistic twist on it again. I guess he said um, we would inject sulfur into the atmosphere. You know, it was one of those techno fixes but he, he took the assignment seriously, and so did some other scientists. What were some of the more striking pictures that were painted? I mean, you talked about what the sky could look like. Sure. Akin to Mount Pinatubo in 91. But what were some of the other things you learned about how climate scientists think the Earth will change in 40 years? Well, we might as well start close to home with our friend Oren Pilkey, <laughs> yes. who's a coastal geologist at Duke, who... Um, you know, is a well-known figure down here. He's an emeritus professor at Duke now. And, and has and, been on this show a, a handful of times and will be on again with his and, latest and, book. And is, you know, one of the things I say in the book is this is going to be the rare climate book where we're actually going to have some fun. And having Orn along certainly helps in that regard because he's blunt and funny and he says things like, you know, if they're going to keep building on a train track, they can't be surprised when the train comes along, you know. So when... And he's talking about coastal development. And he's long talked about sea level rise and about how our attempts to block that are actually aiding the erosion and, and destroying the beaches. And I, um, but Oren was willing to, not surprisingly, kind of lay it on the line and say he doesn't think the Outer Banks will be inhabitable uh, when Hadley's that age. And, um, and he thinks with only a foot and a half or so, you start to run into difficulty, you know, continuing to regularly inhabit a place like that. And he obviously points to the irony of the fact that it was storms and these hurricanes and things that event, that built these islands to begin with, and that the natural process is the island flowing over itself and migrating towards shore. And when we try to block that, we, you know, we, we enhance the disaster. So he, he, you know, for us here, and I always think a flight out of Wilmington, looking down and seeing the water and how close it is and how it permeates everywhere is a real eye-opener. So I had, you know, I had him here and Hal Wainless, who's also of the Orin ilk. You know, he, he's not afraid of laying it on the line. And he was talking four feet in Miami by Hadley being 60. And that is the elevation that Miami is above sea level. So Miami is, is the great disaster that might actually finally open some people's eyes, I think. And New York is going to be underwater, but we'll <laughs> we'll get into that. We can mention Hadley goes to college there. <laughs> <laughs> right, NYU. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of climate change and the future of the Earth with David and Hadley Gessner. Still ahead, the unspoken excitement 
of coming hurricanes and how both Gessners feel about living in coastal North Carolina, a.k.a. Hurricane Alley. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. David Gessner writes about nature. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's also a professor in the creative writing department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. His newest book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, asks what the earth might look like and feel like by the year 2063, when his daughter Hadley is 60 years old. They are both with us today. And before we went to break, we were talking about what you learned, David, from some of these climate scientists that you had asked to paint the picture of 2063. You talked about the air quality and you talked about uh, parts of the East Coast being submerged. What else did you learn? Well, we ended the last section uh, talking about Hadley being at NYU. So her choice of college was the second most dangerous city <laughs> as rank, ranked by hurricane experts. Um, she didn't just, she didn't want to go on a grassy lawn to Middlebury or something. She, of course. She, she, but she, but on that note, are yeah. we talking about um, dangerous cities today in 2024 or are we talking about 2063? Uh, we're talking about right now, which projects ahead, right? Um, because And I think that surprises a lot of people. Uh, Miami ranks first usually, uh-huh. but New Orleans is third. And New York is there not because of the likelihood, though it inc- is increasingly likely, as you know, climate changes uh, that will that will have that. Uh, but what would happen if New York were really hit, not Sandy hit, you know, with a with a storm? Because you, the bridges would close, and this was a lot with traveling with Orin. We did a postmortem. We traveled up after Sandy, up the coast, and watched where 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 Sandy had hit. And uh, he talked about the bridges would close. The only way to evacuate would be up. And there's a remarkable similarity between New York, which is also an island, people forget, <laughs> and the Outer Banks, in that they have, they're basically um, have roads crossing in, in grid fashion that would usher water through. And parts of uh, because down- they're straight. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. straight. That they're, was they're, so such a strange idea. And that as soon as you read that, you makes sense, you, right? Yeah. Uh, and same with the subways, right? In Bangkok, they go down and up and down uh, rather than the waterfall effect of in New York. Um, and because it's an island and, uh, and you know, the, the flooding would, you know, downtown by the World Trade Center is like five feet above sea level, um, uh, you would only be able to evacuate up and with powers cut, you know, a high rise isn't going to be an ideal place to be during a storm. So that was a projection. And, you know, there have been many sci-fi um, uh, pictures of the, the sunken New York or the flooded New York. And, um, and there are old pictures of old hurricanes of people rowing down the streets. So 
So that good choice had um, on, <laughs> Thank on, your, you. on, on where you <laughs> the, went the to school. The good thing <laughs> is the science of meteorology <laughs> has improved so much that we have a little bit of lead time exactly. usually. So, but that was another factor, yeah. by the way, for New York is that evacuation would take days. Yeah, yeah. and um, and of course, as as we don't know what's going to happen with the Gulf Stream, but as as the world warms, uh, the North can get ready for our southern hurricanes, basically. Um, and another one was out west, and this is another kind of thinking of our home here in Wilmington. It's remarkably similar how fire season, which is, keeps expanding in, in terms of time, uh, it parallels hurricane season here. It's even that, I mean, I've, I've been here 20 years, and I get that kind of August anxiety of, here we go, you know, uh, and people get that in the West about fire season. Another thing is people building in places they shouldn't build, whether it's, you know, uh, clustered along the, you know, trophy homes along the shore or in the West, in part because of the history of fire suppression. It turns out Smokey the Bear was wrong. You know, you, you should have let it burn a little bit. Uh, the building up of, of, um, of basically kindling and then building in places that hadn't had fires in a long time because of the suppression. When the fires came, they were hotter and worse than ever. And, and um, this summer was a nice break. I was out west all summer from the historic 20-year drought, but it's not projected to continue. So you have, you know, you can picture ahead um, to 2063 of a hotter but drier landscape. The Colorado River still struggling to support the 40 million people who depend on it for drinking water and and increased fires. So, I mean, I believe people listening, It's a it really does have fun moments in the book. It's not quite as dismal as I make it because, you know, it's it's about really the book's about wrestling with these facts and, and what do we make of them? And as an artist, what do you make of them, you know? Well, that's sort of a perfect lead-in to a, a segment from your book in which you kind of talk about the difference between intellectually understanding what climate scientists are talking about and then and feeling it. And, and you spend a lot of time in this book grappling with how you're presenting this. I mean, this happens throughout. Yeah, yeah. I think what, you, what do I make of the end of the world is a question I ask. And I, I have an epigraph from Maya Angelou, which is, a bird doesn't sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. I think so much of climate writing has either been bullet points or statistics or doom. And I was trying to make it more uncertain and more about how we all really feel. Like I get, you know, I know Hadley's talked about, um, about turning away from being a climate activist because you have your life to live. I get why we repress this thing. It's really hard to think about it. And Hadley, I think after your dad reads this Mm -hmm. section, I want to talk to you about that a little bit. Just your your high school career and climate activism and how you think about it now. But let's listen. David Gessner reading from A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World. I know all this, you see, but I can't really picture it, can't really feel it, can't really imagine Hadley walking through it when she is my age. But the fact I can't imagine it doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. I am better at describing the world as it was and is than as it will be. 
Maybe the life I've lived will be looked back on as if it were a dream. It is a lucky life where I've walked into national parks and forests and believed I had gotten away. What a concept. Before Mr. McKibben declared the end of nature. Back when not only when I not only splashed creek water on my face, but sometimes drank it. And when I did, I felt exhilaration and I felt freedom and I felt joy. I remember seeing flocks of white pelicans flying overhead and seeing humpbacks breach from shore and seeing a grizzly trying to rein in its frolicking young and seeing thousands of swallows stage in a great cyclone of birds and paddling alongside a dozen dolphins and swimming, always swimming, in clean, cold water. I remember doing this in the east and in the west, in mountain streams and in oceans, oceans that we are told will soon be hot pools of infection, but were once our great respite our great pleasure. I've been lucky to have these days upon days in nature without worry that the forest will be gone, burned, beetle-ridden. And so even as I type these words describing what will become of the green world, I still can't quite completely believe them. Could this really happen? Could this really be? Maybe we all remain climate skeptics of a sort. If we can't imagine this will happen, if we can't picture it, Maybe we should all be lumped in that category. If we weren't, if we really did believe this future could happen, we would act in a way that made one thing clear. This is humanity's greatest priority. This is the most vital thing, the looming thing, the thing we are choosing not to face. The challenge is to get beyond words. The challenge is to feel the future. David Gessner reading from his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the end of the world. Hadley Gessner, you actually engaged in some climate activism when you were in high school. You're now a sophomore at NYU studying film. But tell us what you did in high school and what was driving that. A lot of it came from attending a private middle school where I was surrounded by a lot of people who didn't share the same political standpoints as me. And that was very difficult because as I grew up, I started to kind of become climate conscious and in ways that my peers were not. And I was really disgruntled that there were a lot of people that I was working alongside that seemed completely uninterested in anything I had to say regarding the subject. So I eventually transferred to a public high school, Hoggard High School. Loved it there. Had an absolutely wonderful experience when I was allowed in the classroom. (laughs) But um, I tried to kind of transfer my activism there. So it started personal. It started with my own personal choices. I had a moment where I wanted to go completely zero waste for myself in a limit a lot of the plastics I'd use personally. Um, I've been vegan for six years now in an attempt to kind of reduce my own carbon footprint. Um, one of my New Year's resolutions is to buy more secondhand clothing just to try to reduce my impact. But as I grew older, I became frustrated with the concept that climate change was something I had to put on myself. Because I was a teenage girl And there are a bunch of much bigger, much more powerful corporations out there that could be doing a lot more than I could. However, there was still so much marketing towards um, you have to do it yourself. This is this 
problem is on you. It, it felt like it had kind of fallen upon me. So I created my own segment of the Sunrise organization for Wilmington as a whole. I took kids not just in, in my high school but in other high schools and tried to get a bunch of high schoolers to show up to these rallies and get their voices heard. And initially it went really well. I was really happy with the turnout. I had a lot of friends who were involved. I made a lot of friends through being involved. Um, I did some speeches and I really enjoyed speaking. But then COVID hit and COVID caused a lot of us to kind of dwindle when it, come to, when it came to certain interests. And I found that the more I, I kept on trying to have these meetings with these kids on Zoom, and it was impossible to get anybody to show up. I'd get maybe five participants, and the number kept on dropping and dropping and dropping. And eventually, it felt pointless because if I was trying so hard, but nobody was being receptive to that, what was I going to do? I don't like to think of it in the context of like I gave up. I think I tried to reframe my thinking of okay, this is going to happen. It feels like there's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to try to make as many personal choices as I can to um, reduce my contribution. But I, I kind of made the decision to focus on my own life. And while I am here and while I can participate in these things, what do I really want to do? And that was film. That was art. And there are lots of ways to... As, as my father exhibits, um, filter climate activism into my art, I don't want that to consume my life anymore like it was in high school. I want to center my life on what I want to do while I can do it. It's interesting. You use the language, the marketing was about what people can do mm -hmm. individually. And you, it sounds like you've kind of shifted your thinking. You're, you're still going to do everything that you can personally to, mm -hmm. to be aligned with your values. Yes. But say more about what you think about that shift. <laughs> I mean, I think it's ridiculous. I think there's a lot of we talked about greenwashing a lot where companies will advertise themselves as super eco friendly when a lot of the times they are absolutely not. And it's all about consumerism. It's all about placing the blame on the consumer so that you feel guilty, so that you feel like, especially with young people, I see a lot of young people feeling like this is their problem. This is their fault. It's them. It's these jobless teenagers. It's in their hands to fix this entire crisis. And that's because, I mean, it's all over TikTok. It's all over Instagram, these infographics about what you can do. And of course, there's personal accountability. And I've tried to take as much as I possibly can by taking these steps in my personal life. But there's only so much I can do. There's only so much anyone can do who doesn't have massive political or even social power and when we're giving all we're given all these examples of these politicians and these superstars flying private jets and causing climate chaos <laughs> <Taylor Swift. laughs> I was on a rant about that this morning um and, and you know, of course, do. the fossil fuel companies love the personal oh, responsibility narrative. It's perfect, right? Like we're, you know, by by being vegan, we're going to stop what's created, and uh, you know, so it's it feeds into it. It's part of you know. I started to see. I really got into interested in how the story is told, and I saw the tropes and cliches of it. How you could never, you know, I vowed at one point in the book, I'm not going to. I'm banning the word hope. Not because I'm not a hopeful person. I am. I'm a pretty optimistic person. 
but because I would just watch these stories of like, you know, oh, the sea is hotter than it's ever been and it's taken two-thirds of the CO2 and, oh, and here's a little turtle or something. You know, there always has to be some uptick thing. And, and there's a value in looking directly at a thing in its ugliness as well as its beauty. And I tried to do that throughout the book. Um, and you also, you, you weave in the idea of disease, the pandemic and other diseases as a result of climate change, as well as societal breakdown. And you don't shy away from the politics. And it, it, it shouldn't, but it still surprises me that when we talk about climate change and we look at the body of research that we have, we're, it's still a political issue, this, this Pew Research study finding that 2023, hottest year on record, 46% of Americans say human activity is the primary reason. I couldn't reason. believe that, by the way, when you read that. Because my sense, being out in the world and going to these places, I always used to think it was so much better going to these places. Like going, I was down in the, uh, during the BP oil spill, I was down in the Gulf. And I was like, wow, red and blue people actually do talk to each other. It's not like MSNBC and Fox. And I did not find a lot of climate denial. You know, it might have framed it a little differently, but people were aware that, that things had changed. So I, I, I'm amazed that it's still that bad. And that's, that's, I mean, I believe it. It's shocking. Well, you were also uh, it's sort of in the middle of it, in the middle of the effects of what was happening right. when you're so in those places. So people couldn't really deny. So, right. Yeah. So I, I do wonder then how the two of you feel about living in southeastern North Carolina near the beach on a waterway, is that something that is becoming a factor? Hadley Gessner? Yeah, I grew up on the beach. I really adore the beach, and it's really heartbreaking, the idea of it ever being gone. Um, I live in two places, which we've talked about. New York is, there's an extreme risk over there of hurricanes um, kind of blocking the streets. I've already experienced being 30 minutes late to a class because the subway is flooded. And then when I'm here, I have similar experiences of just this fear due to a hurricane season. And what's going to happen when I, I, have, I have many friends that live on the shore, what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to their homes, and what's going to happen to our homes. Our yard likes to flood sometimes. Um, we live on the marsh, and that in itself is kind of, it started kind of cool when I was younger. And then as I grew up, I realized it was a little... We used to kayak through it. Yeah, yeah, we used to kayak through it. It's a little freaky, though. Well, yeah. I think in terms of the deniers and, and living here, um, first of all, it's been, as a writer, it's been, I, I didn't plan on moving to the South. You know, I was committed to where I was at the time, which was Cape Cod. And it's been very good for my writing to be unsettled. Um, you know, there's a whole trope within nature writing, the Wendell Berry Thoreau trope of you've found your place on earth and you settle there and you commit to it. And so um, I've liked being unsettled in, the, from, in terms of my mind being active and, and dealing with this. And, and at, at UNCW, I really pushed people when I worked as a chair there to embrace this town for what it was. And that included two disparate things, you know, 1898 and the fact that we're literally on the edge, on the hurricane edge. And those two things to me seemed important and, and put us, it made me see Wilmington um, in kind of in a dramatic fashion of like where we were 
on the edge in both those issues. And so um, I, I've, I've, I certainly haven't found a loss of lack of material here. <laughs> it's, so you're it's staying right. put for now. For now. <laughs> you're listening to Coastline. After this short break, we'll have more with David Gessner and Hadley Gessner and exploring his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water is the newest book from nature writer and New York Times bestselling author David Gessner. His daughter, Hadley Gessner, is an undergraduate student at New York University. She was an active climate activist. How do you like that for a dis- active climate activist? <laughs> that's just the trend. No, yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, and she told us earlier in this discussion <laughs> that that's that's uh, sort of on hold in the in the outer world, despite her personal choices. She's with us today, along with her dad, to talk about the changing climate and the scary prospect of a hotter, drier more storm-prone, less livable planet by 2063, the year she turns 60. And I'll be, what, 120, I think. Oh, yes, you will be, because you'll still be here. I wanted to ask the question, actually. So there's this other Jetsons future where I'll I'll be in a cyber, (laughs) I'll be a half-robot or something. Oh, upload you to the clouds. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, during the break, we we talked about having kids and how a lot of Gen Zers these days seem to be off that concept. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask earlier about um, your death day, but then I realized how insensitive would that be sitting here with your daughter <laughs> and like, oh, leave it to me to ask yeah. a question like that. But here we are. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's no relief for you because Hadley will still be here. Right. In 2063. Right. And that's I, and, as painful yeah. as your own. Yeah. And, and one thing I talk about in the book, and I mean, it's a trope of environmentalism, your children's children or children's children's children. It actually goes back to Native American thinking more long term. And then Teddy Roosevelt said it at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, we um, but it's a real failure of imagination if you can't. Um, picture that your child is going to live in a world different than you are and longer than you are and that she might have a child. And um, it just strikes me not to um, get people angry at me, but uh, it, uh, the conservative denial of climate just seems so antithetical to family values and caring about your children and thinking about the world beyond you. So Yeah. Do you think about kids, Hadley? I do quite frequently. It's a conversation I find myself having a lot with my friends. And as we were talking about over the break, I find it interesting the kind of um, not necessarily political, but almost geographical divide of my friends from the South 
really still wanting kids, whereas my friends in college not wanting kids at all. And it's it's a question I ask myself a lot. I know that right now at the point in my life where I am, it's not something that I want to think about at all. It's so far in the future for me. But it's something I'll, I'll talk to my friends about kids when they're on their rants about their futures and what they want. And I'll be like, I really don't know, because I really don't know. There's no telling what's going to happen in five years. If in five years there's a definite solution, then maybe that's something I could consider. But right now it's looking kind of bleak. I mentioned that I go to NYU and in Union Square, right by where I live, there's a climate clock ticking down um, the days until, what is it again? Until something really bad happens. <laughs> is it is it one of those milestones where we can't turn yeah, back? Yeah. One of the one points of, those of no re- where we Which can't we just had one. Turn yes. back. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's pretty brutal to walk by it every day because although, like, as I just demonstrated, it doesn't really tell you exactly what it means, <laughs> yeah. it's scary. Yeah. Um, so looking at, like, a stimuli like that every single day of my college career kind of makes me think, like, my future is what matters. And as selfish as that may seem, I see it. I see this kind of like a, a selfless thing because I don't want to bring somebody into a world where their lived experience is going to be significantly worse than mine. Yeah. David Gessner, in the chapter Beneath the Ice, you tell this story about this deeply cathartic experience that you had um, from your book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World. Would you introduce us to to what just happened and then read that section? Sure. Um, You know, you mentioned in the intro my kind of complicated relationship with the term nature writer, and I actually wrote a book called Sick of Nature. And, but I actually found in this book that the tools of the nature writer were perfect for going and encountering people in places and, and learning about them, and it really worked well with, with climate. You know, my joke later was that Am I saying that nature writers, you know, can save the planet? It's a little like saying hobbits can save Middle Earth. <laughs> and, well, there you go. So this piece is called Beneath the Ice, and it starts, My mother is dying and the world is warming. Both occupy my thoughts, but neither as much as you might think they would. So it's got three themes, and one is uh, the ice melting in the Antarctic. And it, it's short sections of, you know, a chunk the size of Los Angeles breaks off one day and it's down way low in the paper. And the other section is about my following the Colorado River by boat, by plane, by swimming in it, um, up until we, I climb, go up to the source in December where it's covered in ice, but it flows below, which is a theme throughout the piece. And I can stand, so I straddle the Colorado River, the same water that's you know providing drinking water for 40 million people. Um, I think one of the things that we deal with and the psychology of climate change is repression. I say in this chapter, we bury, we hide, we try to ignore, we take deep breaths and buy coffee cups that tell us not to panic, we don't go down in the basement. So throughout the piece, I'm wrestling with this and my mother, I mean, one thing I wanted to do is bring personal subjects in along with political subjects in a way that usually isn't done. So um, at the end, the piece ends like this. For for me, it happens early on the same morning, 
that my friend Mark Carger and I drove up to the source. I skipped that early morning in these notes, but let's back up. The night before our trip to the source, I find myself sleeping up the canyon in Boulder's Adventure Inn, a place where I've never stayed before. I wake to a spectacular sunrise and take my coffee out to the picnic table in front of my room and write for a while. Blazing orange patches of clouds light up the morning sky. I wonder, not for the first time, why don't I live here? Half as a joke, I use my phone to play Rocky Mountain High in the car as I drive down into Boulder. I tear up a little, the silly, sentimental kind of tears. I have no idea real tears are on their way. My destination is Carger's house outside of Denver, and I listen to Rocky Mountain High twice before letting the playlist move on to other songs. I think nothing of it. Thank God I'm a country boy, follows Take Me Home Country Roads, and then it happens. Any song comes on. Any song, which just happens to be, for no particular reason, the favorite song of Barbara Gessner. The same Barbara Gessner who gave birth to me 60 years ago and who is now sitting in a nursing home in North Carolina, scribbling down what looked like ancient runes, not even decipherable to her, in the same sort of wire ring notebook she has made things to do list for for half a century or so. The same Barbara Gessner who doesn't really believe that she is in assisted living but thinks she is either in a prison or some scary prep school where people plot against her and where each night they take her to a place called the windowless home and the same woman who lives in, the state, in a state of constant agitation, as if there were something to do that if she could only remember what it was and do it, would solve everything that is wrong with her, but that she can't do because she can't remember what that thing is, like an itch that can't be scratched, and whose mind and body bear little resemblance to the woman who danced in high heels on top of pianos, and who was always the youngest, coolest, prettiest mom, and who loved her firstborn son with all her heart and signed her letters to him, your ever-loved mom. Yes, that Barbara Gessner. That son of hers has built up some pretty thick calluses over his 60 years, what with lots of other deaths and trials. And, then, and though he knows that what he is witnessing is a tragedy, an everyday tragedy, but a tragedy still, he never really gets too emotional about it. He deals with her, the problem of her, as if she were any other problem on his very own things-to-do list. He can quite coldly say to his sister, it would be better if she died and mean it. He can listen to his wife talk about how awful and sad what has happened is and nod numbly and agree and say nothing until those first notes of Annie's song. At that moment, the great stoic disappears. Suddenly he, let's cut the crap, not he but me, is bawling like a toddler. Suddenly my chest is throbbing and tears are flowing and it won't stop, carrying on right through sunshine on my shoulders and leaving on a jet plane. And still I keep crying a few miles short of Carger's house, where I pull over at a neighborhood park. My poor mom, I wail into the rental car. My beautiful mom, my mom, how can this be? It is an old school catharsis, and it all comes pouring out. It takes about half an hour to pull myself together, to stuff the tragedy of my mother back down where it belongs, to carry on with my day, to get back to normal. A few hours later, Mark Carger and I We'll be walking alongside the Colorado River as we hike toward the source. But there are long stretches where we won't be able to see the river at all. It flows beneath the ice. David Gessner reading from his most recent book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World. You know, in 2017, David Gessner, you told me that a lot of your work, your books, were about your search 
for your father. And in this, you are the father. Yeah, that's, you caught me off guard with that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, my father didn't have a father, or he lost his father when he was three. And he wrestled, you know, he was a tough dad, but he, um, but my mom, I still, she died uh, a year ago. And Philip Gerard died around the same time and another good friend of ours. And uh, I still can't quite get back to the, that was one of the rare moments I could get back to who she was. And to link it to our larger subject, I really think it's, I understand why people repress or ignore climate change. Um, to face the fact that, that, I mean, the scientists have been right on the nose or, or, you know, it's even gone beyond what they predicted so far. So why don't we believe that they'll be right five years from now, 10 years from now, 15, 20, et cetera? And if they the, are— The trajectory of Warren Pilkey in your book, just somebody who you've acknowledged decades ago was considered um, wild, just radical in his views and is now considered rather, mm, yeah. well, moderate. Yeah. <laughs> so if that's true, um, maybe we should use a few brain cells to try to imagine— the world that's going to be there, even if it's hard, you know, and I understand why we don't. Yeah. You said also that in one way, all your books are about being obsessed with something. Are you at the point where you're sick of talking about climate change yet? Well, or what, what has this done to you? Well, you know, I, I made a rule that I wasn't going to be hopeful guy in this book, right? So now uh, this summer, I did a piece for Sierra Magazine that will likely turn into a book where I've written about the Yellowstone to Yukon corridor, which is this migratory corridor, which actually shows up at the end of the Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's book about climate. And, and around the same year, Hadley would be 60, it turns out, this nature preserve. We've done the right thing in this, in, in this fictional world, in Cli-Fi. But I traveled up it, and it's a corridor for bear and elk and um, mountain lions and uh, wolves. And I know I was doing it as an antidote to what I'd just done the last few years. And, and it's threatened and there's pain there, but it was also a hopeful thing. And I used the word hope, which oh, I said I wouldn't. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, you explore the meaning of wild. You write, wild is not just acorns and bugs. Wild is the surprising, the unexpected, the funny. Wild is understanding just what a comically small role you play in the reality show called Earth. In what ways are we moving away from wildness? And what is the opposite of that? Tameness, domesticity, predictability? Sure, sure. And I would say, since it's relevant to what we're talking about, the way we write about climate isn't very wild. The way we think about it is statistics and bullet points and and it's, it's messier than that. And so much of life is. And, you know, in, our narratives have become less wild and more pat. Um, you know, I will admit to watching a lot of MSNBC, but they've got their tropes, you know, and it's, they're, they're these, you know. So trying to break out of those for me is kind of my goal as an artist is to, is to reflect the best times I've had on the planet, you know, which are those times where... It didn't happen the way I thought it would happen. It didn't happen the way the narrative was supposed to go. And often for me, that involves the natural world and you know, being out with birds and being out on marshes and being out on the water. 
like after the BP oil spill in 2010 when you went to yeah. the site and you looked in the in the eyes of a pelican. What yeah, happened? yeah, it was it was a weird moment where we'd been talking theoretically about all these oiled birds and then I was in basically the prison camp where they were restoring the birds and I just looked in and it was like eye contact and similar to the thing I just read about my mom where it was this visceral oh my god this this creature is lost and homeless and we've done this to them through our gluttonous you know ways so it was a you know I don't go around saying that all the time but that's what I felt in that sharp moment of empathy with the animal you also uh, talk a lot about your own hypocrisy in the book. You pull the curtain back on that frequently. Yeah. And then near the end, you talk about you are going to get solar panels and drive an electric car. Where is that now? Well, the, I'm beating my old car into the ground, which seems environmental, <laughs> right. uh, before I do that. And was just told our house is too tree-covered to get them currently. So I'm nowhere with that. I'm still a raging hypocrite when it comes to this. Hadley, what's the one thing you would like people to do if they could do one thing? What would it be? Oh, that's tough. Just listen. I think that that's the most important thing. Listen to young people. Um, when we talk about how we feel about this matter, uh, we know things. We're not dumb. <laughs> That's this edition of Coastline. David and Hadley Gessner, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. The book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, from Tory House Press. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.